Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Today, we are talking to Rahul Agura about the history of Ethernet Virtual Private Networks, or EVPNs. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Well, good evening, Rahul. I don't know. You're in San Jose, right? Uh, I live in San Francisco. Yeah, I'm living in San Francisco. Francisco. So it's 7 o'clock for you. Uh, For me, it's about 4. Oh, sorry, uh, it's about 4. That's right. My computer time says 7. It's 7 for Donald, and the frogs are jumping on his head Mm -hmm. again tonight. Hi, Donald. Hi, frogs. (laughs) Donald always has the frogs. So, cool. Let's start here, Rahul. So, what were you thinking, man? Like, EVPNs. We needed another layer two encapsulation over layer three. Like, what, <laughs> what was going on there? Tell me where this started and why. Yeah, so maybe maybe just a quick introduction about yeah, yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah. Talk, yeah, talk about um, yourself first. That would be cool. Yeah, so, you know, I've been in networking since the late 90s. Uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to create uh, several or help create several technologies in the MPLS and VPN uh, domain. Uh, particularly uh, while I was at Juniper. And one of them was uh, EVPN, of course. Uh, I'm also an entrepreneur. I'm on to my second startup. Uh, It's called uh, Octera Networks. We are changing uh, network operations in a pretty fundamental way. Okay. That's that's my my little background. And Uh, and I hope you're deploying EVPNs in your startup. Yeah, we are a layer above that. So, (laughs) yeah, 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 pretty, pretty complimentary. But, uh, but boy, your question, uh, why EVPN? I think, uh, you know, uh, of the, say, the four or five uh, key technologies which I sort of helped bring to fruition, EVPN almost has the most, I I should say, complex uh, starting point. You know, or what was the reason? It, it's complicated. It's not. It's not simple. Um, okay. And maybe, maybe in the end, it might. You know, it turns out to be simple. I think if you look in the rearview mirror, it might be simple. But at the time, it wasn't. So if you sort of uh, uh, step back and look at, uh, you know, the first EVPN uh, draft was published in 2010. Uh, it was called Mac VPN at the time, and. Uh, I'll take you through different pieces of this, but the you know uh, why why did we uh, go after EVPN at that time in the 2009, uh, 10, maybe even eight time frame? Uh, the the whole uh, data center explosion was just about starting, and uh, people were beginning to look at uh, you know enterprises uh, and some service providers, but enterprises are really beginning to look at well how do we deploy our data centers at scale. And the technology which existed at the time, uh, so you have to sort of go through a progression, was really a layer two spanning tree. And that was really the only way uh, to to build layer two fabrics, if you will. And a lot of data center applications, uh, you know, there was some legacy in there. There were different implementations by different vendors. Well, we had had L2TPV3, right, which is only point to point. So that's not useful for what you want. And I remember there were discussions around making L2TPV3 multi-point, which would be an absolute disaster. Um, And then there was um, VPLS, right, which was very difficult 
to deploy from what I remember is, is well, I, I remember it well because I deployed it several times and it's very difficult to deploy. So, okay, go ahead. Sorry. So I just, I just wanted to like. Yeah, no, no, this is, it's, it's all good. Um, see, if you look at the, the switching side of things, right, the, the data center side of things, uh, uh, the VPLS was never really in the picture because it's, you know, very much an MPLS technology and the switching hardware which existed in, in those environments uh, you know, wasn't really very MPLS friendly um, uh, at, at that, you know, at that, so, so VPLS didn't really take off in that environment so much. Uh, it, and then uh, uh, L2TP V3, yeah, I mean, actually I, I did some work there in the early days. I, I don't think that had much footprint. So what really existed was spanning tree. After that trill, um, and then Cisco had some proprietary implementations around that. And uh, both of these technologies sort of, they had a fundamental thing, which was they were carrying MAC addresses in the switching plane uh, in, in quote unquote the underlay, but they were carrying the host MAC addresses in the underlay. Uh, and as people began to think about scaling data centers, uh, there were a lot of issues with this. There were issues around scale. There were issues around spanning VLANs across racks. There were issues around active-active load balancing, uh, equal cost multipath, which were be becoming really pretty pretty key you know, requirements from uh, data center fabrics. So then uh, sort of the, there was this uh, thing around, well, you know, what do we do here? You know, we, we, uh, and then there was another thing, actually, which I should mention, uh, moving away from data plane learning. Uh, so VPLS hadn't really gained momentum in the data center because there was no need to. When the need came, then data plane learning was already sort of on its way out in some sense because you know uh, it didn't quite solve things like uh, active active load balancing. Uh, it does have scaling issues at some point because you know you are the way the whole sort of uh, flow works with uh, you know learning um, uh, forwarding behavior based on packets being received and so on. So there was this thing uh, gelling some uh, in in various places. Well, how do we uh, you know, go to the next thing, and what is that next thing? And it's uh, th there was a realization that's control plane based learning, um, but uh, you know, what protocol do we use? How do we do it? So there was that happening. The second thing which was happening was that uh, there were some people who were saying, well, VPLS as deployed in service provider environments, so VPLS as a service, doesn't have certain characteristics such as active active load balancing faster convergence, more control over uh, policies, and so on. Um, so these two things sort of happened a little bit at the same time. And uh, I was a Juniper at the time. And I would say that uh, the reason why uh, uh, myself and you know Juniper sort of uh, uh, really spent energy around, it was called MacVPN when I, first, when I wrote the first internet draft was because, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just give you, tell you the, you know, uh, I'll give credit to a few people where it really matters. Uh, Aldrin Isaac from Bloomberg, you know, he came to me and he said, well, look, we really need a solution. Trill doesn't quite work because uh, it doesn't have the scale characteristics we want. Uh, so then uh, we, we sat down at Juniper and we said, well, you know, uh, leveraging IPVPN technology for MAC addresses seems to make a lot of sense. 
And uh, it so happened that at the time, uh, Juniper was working on a fabric. It was a product called Q Fabric, some of which you may know of it. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. right? And that product was building a very large scale fabric for interconnecting top of rack switches, or it's almost interconnecting servers, think of it that way. And it was using something similar to a BGP distributing MAC addresses inside the fabric. Uh, so with that going on, with Aldrin coming to me, uh, it sort of made sense to put energy behind this problem. And then, then I spoke to Jim Otaro at AT&T and Han at AT&T, and they said, well, uh, this makes sense for us, both from a VPLS standpoint, sort of moving to a, a next generation of that, and from the, the you know, uh, data center standpoint. So I think with two very, very prominent, say you can say service providers slash enterprises in the industry wanting this and a decent bit of mind share around the problem uh, with Juniper having a product which was doing something similar, there was a lot of momentum behind creating this technology. That's where it came from. Uh, I'll talk about complexity in a bit separately, but that's where it came from. So... Um, when you talk about control plane learning, there are two basic kinds of control plane learning or ways you can learn reachability, right? One is through reactive, where you're waiting for the device to send me a packet, and you're actually, in the way bridge learning works, and this is the way VPLS works, right, is you're actually learning every hop along the way. You're not just learning at the originating, not where, you turn, not where you're bringing it onto the control plane, but you're learning everywhere by a bridge learning, right? It's all reactive. So there was, so when you talk about this, I think one of the things you're saying is that there was a desire to do something more proactive with Mac level learning or with Mac address learning, right? Yeah, actually, you put it in a really good way. Uh, proactive is a good word because uh, fundamentally, uh, right, if you stick a further step back, uh, the layer two world sort of worked in what, you know, what you call the reactive mode, where the, the population of the forwarding path is done at every hop based on the traffic which flows. After the traffic flows, control plane uh, or routing really allows you to set up the forwarding uh, paths across the internet before traffic flows. And it has a lot of beautiful properties associated with it. And that's, I think, the key sort of recognition that uh, especially in data center environments, uh, there's a lot of value to that paradigm. And the sweet spot of EVPN was that, where actually uh, you could take that all the way to the host where the MAC addresses of the host could be learned by the, let's call it the PE or the first hop which advertises them in the control plane as well. So if you look at the current, uh, most current implementations of EVPN on top of rack switches, they learn MAC addresses from top of uh, from, from the host in the data plane, uh, you know, uh, especially in the VM or container environments. But the sweet spot of EVPN is not that. The sweet spot is what people like Contrail and Nuage do, where they learn MAC addresses from the VMs uh, in their controller using a control protocol like XMPP, and then they advertise it further out. So that's really the logical you know, progression of this. Okay, so you, so you carry the learning even off of the top of rack, and you carry it all the way down like into the hypervisor and drag it up through XMPP and advertise it in BGP that way. So yeah, everything exactly. is proactive. So when you spin the VM, you're actually getting the MAC address when you spin the VM and the MAC address to IP mapping, and you're carrying that directly into EVPN. So that's... 
Okay. That's, that's exactly right. And see, and that then sort of, um, that's why I was saying in the beginning, this is a, a very, slightly, there's some complexity to the origination of this technology, because now if you look at how the industry evolved, uh, the, the, it's really an overlay technology, right? It's a VPN virtualization technology. So that overlay ended up in two places. It ended up on the server, as you said, on the hypervisor, and it was leveraged by you know, a bunch of vendors uh, who built overlay products from the server. And it, uh, and that, I think, at the time when this technology was created uh, in 2010 timeframe, that was not top of mind. Um, you know, the, the top of mind was that it will be used on the top of rack switch or in the underlay fabric as a virtualization technology. And that's happening as well today. But I feel that the, for whatever I have seen and heard, that uh, adoption of EVPN as virtualization uh, and overlay on top of rack switches, uh, that's behind the adoption uh, which was seen on the hypervisor side with a bunch of vendors in that space. Uh, so that, that, that's, that, that's interesting how that, that evolved. Yeah, that is interesting. So, so let's go back to the beginning again. You had Mac VPN that you published first. And so when you talk about that, how did that evolve? What, what happened after that that caused people to start thinking in terms of, um, like you were saying, coming off of that using, so your original conception that it would be on the hypervisor, right? Or it would be on the host, and then it would be moved to the top of rack, or was it the other way around? It was the other way around. The it was around the, top of rack first, okay. Yes, it, it, it was top of rack first. But I think uh, we have to, again, sort of go back to the history a little bit. Uh, there's more to it. So uh, we at Juniper, you know, we, we went after Mac VPN. Our primary focus was data center. VPLS was secondary. At the same time, roughly at the same time, Ali Sajasi at Cisco, uh, he published uh, uh, a draft called RVPLS, Routed VPLS, uh, and his focus was, uh, and it was really a Cisco-focused effort, um, uh, and, and their focus was really around addressing the shortcomings of data plane learning in VPLS, in the service provider environment. Right. Uh, and these two efforts then sort of converged as the EVPN standards evolved. And one could say, looking in the rear view mirror, that there is a lot of complexity which comes from uh, taking these two streams together. You know, that's just uh, yeah, yeah, uh, right. You know how how, how it happened, but but it was uh, quite interesting that uh, uh, which has happened throughout the course of interesting networking technology that two major vendors you know uh, came up with something similar. Uh, though I would say for different reasons. Okay. All right. So talk to me about Trill a little bit. So why wasn't Trill being seen as a solution for this problem? Was it primarily scale or, or what was going on there? You see, I think from our point of view, it was scale and virtualization. Um, I think, you know, and, and we wanted to leverage IP VPN, uh, L3 VPN. If you look at 2547, 2547 has absolutely beautiful constructs for scale, virtualization, and policy. And uh, of course, it's built on top of BGP, but it has really great constructs there, right? And uh, Trill didn't have any of that. I mean, uh, obviously, um, I'm sure some of it was added as people went on, but there were many, many shortcomings. Uh, it's, uh, and it's really interesting to see. I've been quite fascinated by how much uh, adoption EVPN has gotten, surprised actually I've been, uh, at least from the vendors. 
uh, in fact, this seems to be a, a peculiar case where there is massive adoption from the vendors and there is not commensurate adoption from the people who are deploying it. Uh, usually stuff is a little bit other way around. You know, when I created, for example, point to multi-point MPLS ages back, and I would love to talk about it separately, is uh, there was only a single vendor which implemented it, it and it got deployed all over the place. By the time other people implemented it, it was already deployed all over the place. In the case of EVPN, it's completely the other way around. It's just fascinating. Uh, so I'm not mean, sure I actually actually agree with that because you know we you know we got EVPN in the last six eight months and it is all we're doing right now. Uh, what uh, which uh, sorry which provider are you? I work for Cumulus. Cumulus networks. And it's, it's it is it is made. I shouldn't say all we're doing, but it is it is pretty big in the so, days. So it's so right. So in FR routing, it's being deployed very heavily in FR routing, which is the open source routing stack. Yeah, but that that's great to hear. So that's something which I wasn't aware of. So it looks like in the maybe in the last couple of years, it's finally finally getting there. Yeah, but yeah, there but was yeah, a I mean, lot. It's, of the, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of vendor uptake, particularly Cisco and Juniper at first, um, and pushing it, and then Alcatel as well, right? Alcatel and Nuance. Yeah, Alcatel. So actually, I think I think both the statements are true because see, the the technology was created in 2010, and now we are talking in 2018, and maybe in the last couple of years there is deployment, which I wasn't aware of. So good to hear that. Um, but uh, you know, it, it took a long time. Uh, uh, you know, we we at Juniper in those days had a very uh, simple principle that we need an internet draft and shipping code. And a lot of the specs we wrote were based on that. And EVPN was kind of like that. I mean, a lot of the implementation of Juniper took a while, but we did have something. Uh, but it, 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 adoption was, was, uh, took a little bit longer. Okay. Uh, but Alcatel, yeah. Actually, uh, another thing which was very interesting about EVPN was uh, I always kept thinking that it's going to be a real mess to get this through the IETF. It's going to be really, really difficult. Uh, because one problem was, well, where do we take this in the IETF? There was a layer two VPN working group and the layer two VPN working group's charter was not data center. I mean, why does layer two VPN working group care about the data center or service provider focused? And, uh, but the way it worked out, and this is where I think uh, what Cisco was doing and what Ali Sajasi was doing really helped because uh, they, they were positioning this technology as sort of the next gen VPLS. And that allowed us to get all the data center requirements in with zero friction. Uh, and it just sailed through. I had never seen that before. And Alcatel, you know, uh, uh, came in. Uh, of course, you know, there are the, some of the usual compromises made along the way on the details. Right. And, and Ericsson. Yeah, Ericsson also fell into it as well. Ericsson fell into it. So it's the, uh, we made some compromises on the design, right? That's, that's a given. That happens. But uh, uh, the, 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 the politics of it in the ITF was surprisingly smooth. Which is interesting because, you know, it's only taken us 20 years to start deploying IPv6 in any kind of serious <laughs> levels. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it does come down to sort of a balance between the, the pain that the, the technology is solving, how complex is it, how good the implementations are. Uh, there's so many things and, you know, what's the, the quality of the initial implementation? Mm, there are many, many things. So, so you talked about Ali Sanjasi's uh, stream of stuff that was going in. So what did he bring to the table that was merged? Because I don't remember those drafts. So I'm very curious about, you know, like, what was he 
trying to solve more of a, you said Mac learning for VPLS type stuff. Yeah, so I think the uh, if you look at VPLS and VPLS, this is another interesting one, right? VPLS is a widely, widely deployed and adopted technology oh, in the yes. service provider space, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, but VPLS has always had few shortcomings because it's based on data plane learning, and active active is one of them. You can't have multiple active customer circuits uh, connected to you know different PEs, for example. So this is one of the shortcomings, and there are others. You know, you can't really control how MAC addresses are learned, and you can't apply policies. Uh, so uh, the, the Cisco team, you know, they saw they they said, well, let's advertise MAC addresses in BGP. The same same thing which we were doing to overcome those shortcomings. So that's where uh, Ali Sajasi and, and group came from. Uh, the the final uh, technology which ended up getting getting created, you know. Uh, at the risk of si sounding a little bit biased, I think uh, the the Mac VP you know the Juniper spec I think had more weight, but that's probably uh, happened because we had the the providers behind this. You know, we we had AT and T and Bloomberg working with us, and that that, that obviously carried massive massive weight. Uh, I think. Uh, uh, another thing which happened in this technology, at least from my point of view, I had fairly, I should say, minimal background in layer two, like raw layer two at that time. You know, it's mostly MPLS and routing. <laughs> so I think it was a very interesting marriage of the two worlds, uh, layer two and layer three, which happened here over, over maybe, you know, seven, eight years. And you can see that in all the standards which have emerged from it. Uh, and that was, you know, Ali Sajasi came from a completely layer two world. Right. Uh, yeah. So it, it, it was very interesting how that emerged. So what kind of, when you talk about um, like where the layer two impact came in, where would you say any VPNs that came in? I mean, were there specific points where you thought, well, I'd never thought of that because that's layer two and that's like not, that's outside of my experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're actually uh, subtle details. Um, so if you look at uh, EVPN, the one key construct is active-active. So uh, to achieve active-active, let's say you've got a host connected to two top-of-rack switches. Uh, there's this notion in EVPN that it's on the same Ethernet segment conceptually, uh, even though uh, maybe it's a lag. Maybe it's a lag across two, two, two top-of-rack switches. And, uh, and this lag or this uh, uh, Ethernet segment identifier, it's constructed using layer two constructs automatically. So for example, you can look at LSCP and you can figure out well, I can use LSCP, learn a virtual Mac, and use that as an ESI identifier. Now, uh, those kind of details, you know, how do you sort of auto-derive and bring these two worlds together? There was, yeah. there was quite a bit of that. Interesting. Yeah, I think an interesting thing about, about EVPNs when I first started looking at it was always the, the um, ESI concept and how you can have the same ESI at multiple places in the network and they act like a single broadcast domain. And then you end up with a lot of issues around BUM and stuff like that, broadcasting unknown traffic that's gotta be dealt with. So were there anything around that area like broadcast unknown that was pretty surprising to you or anything like that? You know, I think uh, uh, maybe not surprising per se, but I think that was an area which was uh, difficult to get right. I think that is the area, the whole thing around Active, active, combined with bump traffic, that's okay. the area which creates a lot of complexity in EVPN because that is where you have to deal with, you know, split horizon. Uh, you have to deal with the ESI label, which helps with split horizon. 
uh, uh, you have to sort of figure out how to deal with that with ingress replication and point to multi-point MPLS. And then you sort of start using, when you start using upstream labels, what do you do? Uh, so that area uh, created complexity and there were bugs which took time to fix. I remember, you know, I made this very, uh, very, very, what should I say? Un- unintended features, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, unintended features, you can say, you know, uh, there was this very, uh, looking back, a very simple bug, but uh, very novice bug on my part. I created with, with this thing, which was that, you know, when you were advertising the ESI labels, my original spec was such that the ESI labels were advertised so that the route target would import them only on the the PEs connected to that uh, Ethernet segment. Uh, right. But there was a fundamental bug because if you were doing point-to-multi-point MPLS and the PE connected to that ESI starts to send the packet uh, on the LSP with that ESI label, well, the guy who is multi-homed can do its thing because it has the label, it's imported it because the route target is local to these guys. But someone else... Uh, who is in the VPN, uh, but doesn't is not on the ESI, it gets a packet with this label, well, following NPLS spec, I mean, it, it's, it's going to drop the packet because it doesn't know the label. Right. Uh, so, you know, we ended up then modifying that to say, well, this has to be advertised with all the route targets so everyone can import it. And then they just have a no-op route uh, to pop the label and, and you know, uh, ignore the packet. So there's a lot of complexity like that and a lot of subtle things. So honestly, I've not kept up with implementations, but just given the level of detail here, it has to take time for implementations to catch up and to get stable. So going back, um, what, what, where did the idea of types come from? I mean, I know this is probably one of the most confusing things for people mm. to deal with in EVPN. So where did this whole idea of route types come from and why was that introduced into the, into the process? Yeah, well, you can blame it on me, but I think <laughs> uh, this, I think, comes from BGP and VPN because, you know, when myself and Yaakov, we were working on BGP and VPN uh, and uh, the, we needed multiple route, route types, you can, if you will, right? And they created that construct and then we just reused it in EVPN. Uh, so is it confusing? Well, I mean, I don't know, because uh, ultimately you do need routes with different semantics, right? Uh, and how you encode them, this seemed like an efficient way to encode things. Uh, BGP MVPN got, at least even in my time, you know, back in 2011 or 2012, uh, got massive adoption. And uh, it's somehow wasn't seen as that complex. So it's, it's interesting uh, uh, how EVPN has been seen as more complicated. And part of it might have to do with just uh, part of it is just the fundamental nature of the problem. Part of it has to do with the broad scope of the first RFC. If the scope was a little bit shorter, it, it might have helped. Yeah. Well, I think another thing that's happened is, is that as typical with most technologies, people have thrown all sorts of problems that weren't originally envisioned, like remote, um, remote default gateway was something that I found quite surprising and I wouldn't have anticipated it. And still to this day, I wonder like, really, you need a remote default gateway. That's kind of a strange construction when it's a router on the edge. Right. So is there some history behind that and why that's in there? Yeah, actually it was not in my original spec. It was also not in the spec as long as I was actively involved in it. Um, So it probably got added 
a little bit a little bit later so i'm sorry i can't i can't give you a good definitive answer there but i can i certainly agree with you on that point that's the kind of thing i would write a completely separate draft on yeah you know there's no reason to put it in the original spec it's an optional feature uh, no reason to have 20 other optional features in the original spec right yeah. uh, there are a few things there which could be avoided well there are people who would say and i might be among them actually that the evpn drafts illustrate part of the problem with the ITF process now in that we have so much stuff we stuff into every draft whereas it used to be that drafts were really simple really short i mean 20 pages maybe maybe 10 pages like you look at the bgp draft and it's kind of complex in the ospf draft but they're not like incredibly hard to read and understand and we've gotten to the point now where we just munge a bunch of stuff together into a single draft and I don't really know why we're doing that, but that seems to be a, a thing that's developed over time. Well, yeah. is it, is it, is it a question that the, the draft's just gotten, the, what we're implementing is just more complex? I, yeah, I think, I think, you know, Russ has a point, right? Because if you go back, say, uh, 20 years back, 30 years back, even before my time, right? The basic principle in the ITF was very simple. It Yakov taught me, right? All you need is um, internet draft and shipping code. And because internet drafts were written to bring other people along and standardize a technology for which a vendor saw a need, uh, had a customer or uh, operators wanting to deploy it, had uh, a code which was either deployed close to shipping, shipping developed, something along those lines, right? They served the very logical progression. And then what happened gradually was that people started to write internet drafts uh, almost like research projects. These were things which were just written. Uh, they were never implemented. People who wrote them did not understand how to write code, didn't understand how, uh, how things were developed. And uh, I, I would imagine that, uh, I don't know the percentage, but I would not be surprised if 90% plus of internet drafts are never implemented. If they are, they never deployed. Uh, so it's just how the industry has evolved for good or bad reasons. Interesting. Yeah. So were there any other surprising things that have been added to VPN um, that just like were really like to you, you thought when you saw it, you were like, wow, that's kind of strange. I never would have anticipated that. Yeah, I think there is, there is, there are other, this is an interesting one, actually. There are, a, there are a few other things, right? If you go back to the VPLS days, and this is going way back in time, in, in, the, in the 2000s, in the early 2000s, there was a massive fight in the industry, uh, not just in the standard bodies, but in the industry between BGP VPLS and LDP VPLS. And it was almost actually, if you think about it, it was Juniper on one side and then Cisco and uh, you know, uh, uh, some of the other vendors, I believe even Alcatel at that time on the other side with LDP VPLS. And lo and behold, here we stand 10, 15 years after that and it's almost everyone has converged to BGP. Uh, a BGP, which was deemed as the most complex technology 15 years back, even for service providers, is being implemented on top of rack switches. It's being implemented on servers by Calico. Uh, BGP eVPN, which I think even today when I read the spec, which I wrote, takes me a couple of reads to get my head around it, is uh, not deemed as complex by anyone anymore. Uh, people are implementing it. You know, Donald is telling me that the Cumulus is uh, deploying it left and right. Fascinating. I mean, I, I, think I, wouldn't, it's... I wouldn't say we don't think it's complex because I definitely think it's complex. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, I, I've had a few of the head scratcher moments going, what am I doing here? 
but maybe uh, maybe the industry has grown up a little bit more around it and people more people understand it because you know they're just used to it probably. i don't know that's that's probably a, a an interesting point yeah uh, so I think I think that 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 for me is 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 a really really big one that that uh, 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 but you know the, the the these things sometimes go in circles because now you look at a couple of movements um, which are are going the other way so there is uh, yes and no I mean there, there is of course okay I want to make two points there is calico and uh, if you look at calico calico's basic thesis is overlays are complicated. And uh, let's just put container and VM routes in the underlay. Underlay being BGP though, and we don't need overlays. And you know that's uh, there is some beauty to that. There there are a lot of issues around that approach too because your FIP capacity ultimately in these data center switches is limited. Uh, so there is that movement going on, and not something to be disregarded. I think that's that's happening. And the second thing which I've heard from some people is that well, we want to really think about how to do quote-unquote traffic engineering in the data center. I mean, I'm using that word very loosely because we want, uh, you know, we might have some switches which have uh, shallow buffers, some have deep buffers, and want to really figure out how to route different packets different ways. And now people are saying, well, let's go back and look at protocols like ISIS for that. Uh, so I think, you know, things do go in circles, but uh, I, I feel where we stand today in the industry, the amount of adoption BGP has gotten across the board with EVPN being one of them is massively surprising to me. I would not have thought of that seven, eight years back. Yeah. So another interesting thing to me about EVPNs is it started out as a VXLAN te technology, right? It started out as a way to do VXLAN and not MPLS. Now, was VXLAN invented with EVPN or does that just fall into it? No, no, actually a um, little bit of a correction there. When EVPN was invented uh, back in 2010, VXLAN was not in the picture at all. EVPN right. was always envisioned as an overlay technology leveraging L3 VPN, IP VPN constructs with the transport being predominantly MPLS, maybe GRE, okay. uh, but the inner label always being MPLS. So uh, EVPN was, that's how EVPN was envisioned because the top of rack switches from Juniper uh, at that time were MPLS friendly. So for us, it made complete sense to push uh, MPLS in the data center and our customers, you know, wanted it. Uh, the way that played out in the industry, we bring up another very good point actually, the way that played out in the industry is another reason why maybe EVPN adoption was low, that it's Arista that came and ate everyone's cake in the data center. Uh, Juniper and uh, Alcatel, whoever, right? And Arista had no MPLS. They had, uh, you know, uh, vanilla layer two. They had some routing, and they had, and they came up with VXLAN. Now, if you look at VXLAN for a to a te technology purist, you know, if you asked uh, some of the people like Yakov and Eric Rosen about global MPLS labels, they're going to cringe, right? I mean, you know that the whole battle with the MPLS and upstream labels. Yeah, yeah. Actually, right? I remember I remember this this battle with MPLS first when, when it was tag switching, right, with Yakov and the whole mess with global labels and we can't do global labels. Yeah, that was a huge deal. At that a huge deal. And look at VXLAN. It uses a global VNI. It uses a global right. VNI ID. Uh, but VXLAN got silently massive adoption because of Arista. So I think where we ended up in the last few years is we've got data centers where the overlay on the top of rack is really VXLAN with data plane learning. And then people realize, well, we need control plane learning for this. 
So let's put AVPN together with VXLAN. So I think that's more in the last few years. I can see that getting a lot of adoption. I don't know what's going on at Cumulus, but I suspect it might be AVPN with VXLAN. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's that that was another interesting kind of surprising thing to me as well was, um, oops, we lost Donald. Oh, well. Anyway, <laughs> so um, that was kind of an interesting thing to me as well is the whole development of VXLAN and everything and how that played into it. So, yeah, so I'll ask Donald's question um, since he's not here, since he left us. Um, going back and looking at it now, what would you do different? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is uh, honestly, I don't think I could do that much um, that much differently, right? Because I'll tell you what I wish what could, what would have been different, but I don't think it's something which which is easy or we could have changed easily. Uh, if we got, uh, let's say, uh, AVPN uh, implementation in the data center with a product which which actually got data center adoption, right? For a lot of other reasons, not just AVPN. Um, and uh, you know, if Juniper had managed to do that at that time, uh, again back in the the, the 2010-2011 timeframe then I think EVPN might have evolved as a slightly simpler standard. Right. Uh, and, but I don't think that's something which, uh, even looking back, there's, so, there's so, such a broad topic, right, um, th that we could have done much about. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Well, any other things you want to talk about historically, like um, any interesting interactions about getting it through the ITF other than it's pretty interesting that you said that it came in not as a as a data center technology it came into the layer two group now of course that's been kind of split off and there's BESS and there's some other things around that that have developed um, to do that um, so uh, any other kinds of like historical interesting things interaction between layer two layer three stuff like that uh yeah, it's. I think. I think I've probably gone through gone through most most interesting things uh, that that I can sort of uh, think of. Mm, I think uh, uh, as we look look ahead, uh, I'm yeah, really that's, quite. That's the next question. Like, what do you think is coming ahead? Yeah, I think I'm really quite fascinated by how the data center battle evolves because I feel there is a lot of beauty. To uh, carrying, see, uh, let's step uh, let's step back a little bit more because the another question which could be asked is, well, you know, why do you need uh, to to do things based on MAC addresses in the first place, right? Why can't you use IP addresses? And there are a lot yeah, of good well, reasons, right? That's that's actually my argument all the time is just to layer three. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of it had to do with uh, what existed, you know, uh, what applications exist, how are they implemented, what's going on on the servers and on the apps, and so on and so forth. But I think with the things moving the way they are moving in the industry uh, on the server side of things with virtualization and containers, uh, I think uh, it'll be very interesting to see uh, in general uh, this battle between overlay technologies and just carrying the, the VM and container addresses, uh, quote unquote, in the underlay. And that's, that's the, uh, Calico's approach. Because I think if that can be made to work technically, there, there, there are a lot of challenges around it technically, right? One of them has to do with the amount of capacity uh, on, on the switches, a FIP capacity, right? Forwarding capacity on the switches. These are low-end switches. But if that could be made to work technically, then it's uh, beautiful operationally, 
because uh, uh, people tend to sort of forget, uh, leaving aside complexity that EVP and may or may not have, there is a different operational layer for sure. So I think looking ahead, I think that's interesting uh, how this whole, whole thing will sort of play out. Mm, it's, it's difficult to say how it will play out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think one reason for overlays that people deploy, though, is not just, um, not just because of FIP scaling, uh, which is what you typically see in hyperscalers. That's the only reason hyperscalers tend to run um, overlays, is that also if you're actually selling public cloud, then you need to have virtualization of the network. And that's almost the only, well, it's not the only way to do it is through overlays, but it's almost the best way to do it. The least complex way to do it is to do it with an overlay type of thing. So yeah, that's, that, 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 that's right. So it's, that, that's absolutely correct. So certainly, you know, uh, overlays will stay, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but just how this balance plays out, uh, that, that's, yeah, that'll be quite interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah. And how that all fits with micro-segmentation and all the other cool cool kid stuff going on in security, right? That's so right. There's, there's lots of interesting questions that, that systemically need to looked at, be looked at there. So, all right, cool. Well, Rahul, um, thanks for joining us. It's really cool that you came on and talked to us about the history of EVPNs. Um, where can people find you online? Do you tweet? Do you blog? Do you any social media at all? You know, I, I have a Twitter account, which I used extensively for my first startup, which was uh, doing something quite different, more in the content management space. Uh, it's dormant, but I am on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, that's, that, that's sort of my most active presence. Yeah, I don't okay. really blog much either. Okay. And Donald, well, I know you don't blog, but where else? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at me, not you, Sharp. Me, not you, Sharp. Cool. And I'm Russ White, and you can find me at rule11.tech, the Network Collective, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, whatever. I don't log into Twitter a lot either, but I do from time to time, so <laughs> that's okay. Um, in fact, I don't, I don't keep any social media on my phone. That's a little <laughs> secret. <laughs> So anyway, cool. Well, thanks, Rahul. And uh, for you. everybody out there watching, um, come back and join us the Network Collective for more history of networking and just for networking technology stuff. Thanks, and uh, we'll catch you next time. 